Hello, and welcome to episode 109 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Stanford Fraser about his run for state's attorney in Prince George's County, Maryland. Stanford Fraser is a public defender in Prince George's County and lives with his wife, Michelle Hall, in Largo, Maryland. He graduated from Howard University in 2013, where he studied history and community development. After graduating from Howard, he attended Harvard Law School. At Harvard, he spent his second and third years representing low-income tenants and homeowners facing eviction. Since August 2017, he has worked as a public defender. During his time as a public defender, Stanford has tried over 100 criminal cases and has represented thousands of clients. He is currently running for state's attorney in Prince George's County, Maryland. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Stanford Frazier. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I, I always ask a version of the same first question. How did you get from where you started in life to where you are a public defender running for state's attorney in Maryland? That's such a big question, right? So. <laughs> yeah, I like I like the origin question because it you know lets people kind of add color to their history of getting to where they are today. No, definitely. I always tell people it's a little cheesy, but I first got the idea of becoming a lawyer in elementary school, and it was re- literally during Black History Month at Oakhurst Elementary School. And I remember learning about Thurgood Marshall. He's a Marylander. We're very proud of him. And I remember the story being told. Understandable, <laughs> right? The story was told was that. He couldn't go to the University of Maryland Law School because of segregation. So he went to Howard Law instead, but then, you know, did work with the NAACP, became a Supreme Court justice. And to young me, that was just so inspirational. And that's when I was like, all right, I kind of, I didn't really understand it fully. But at that moment, I was like, all right, I definitely kind of want to become a lawyer when I grow up. Well, that's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good starting place. Uh, Is there anything else on your journey? Were there times where you, you questioned that that was what you wanted to do? How did you end up being a public defender? So... Guess I'd have to go back to my time at Howard University. Howard is an HBCU and has a rich history of social justice and active and activism. You know, people like Stokely Carmichael has come through my university. And when I was a sophomore in 2011, me and a whole bunch of other students became involved in the campaign around the death penalty, but in particular around Troy Davis. And I remember at the day you set to be executed, since Howard's in D.C., we literally marched from campus to the White House. And we had like a protest from like noon to 7 p.m. at the White House. And I remember when the Supreme Court issued the stay, basically saying, you know, it's a pause in the execution proceedings. He wouldn't be executed that night, that there was cheers. We were super happy. And then I remember the feeling of dejection about at around 11 p.m. when the stay was lifted and then the state of Georgia executed Troy Davis. And I remember I carried that like kind of hurt feeling with me for, for a couple of weeks until Ben Jealous, when he was head of the NAACP at the time came to Howard's campus and he's giving a talk and he pointed to Annapolis. He pointed and said, down the road is Annapolis, about an hour down the road. And Annapolis is the state capital of Maryland. And he said, Annapolis has a Democratic governor, Democratic state house, and a Democratic state senate, but they still have the death penalty. And I mean, I, I think at that point, me and a whole bunch of students at Howard basically dedicated our time, like with student government, organizing protests, rallies in, in Maryland, really trying to repeal the death penalty. And I'm really proud that in 2013, Maryland did repeal the death penalty. So I think I knew I wanted to become a lawyer. And then at Howard, I became involved in the anti-death penalty work and fighting to change the legal system. So when I came to law school, I think I wanted to continue working in that criminal legal system. You know, uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, over the last several years, unfortunately, we saw 
the federal death penalty ramped back up during the last administration, and there's been an increase for in kind of an appetite for things uh, like firing squads in certain states, I think South Carolina, and a lot of resistance to even careful consideration of appeals to death penalty cases in recent Supreme Court jurisdiction. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, jurisprudence. What made you uh, kind of uh, come to your conclusions on the death penalty? And what would you say to people, some of whom are current Supreme Court justices, who seem annoyed that people try to slow or stop the use of the death penalty? I think some of the things that made me an anti-death penalty activist were just, you know, for one, it's permanent and, and mistakes are made. I think I, I checked relatively recently and I sent, I think since 1973, that's when the death penalty was brought back in the 70s. There's been over 180 people that have been released or exonerated from death row on grounds of innocence. Right. So we mistakes can be made in, in the criminal legal process and we don't want to ever execute an innocent person. And I also think I think the death penalty is really a microcosm of some of the racial and like economic biases in, in the legal system. Right. People are I think I was looking at the statistics and basically like 77 percent or high 70 percent of the people that are on death row are for killing a white individual. Right. So you your chances of being getting the death penalty is expensively higher if the victim, right, the homicide victim is white versus of any other race, race or ethnicity. And then I think in the state of Maryland in particular, there was a study that was part of the study when we were advocating to repeal the death penalty, that basically black individuals that killed white, that had white victims of homicide, were I think four or maybe five times more likely to face death penalty because of biases in, in the legal system. I understand the disparity uh, is a real problem with trying to look at the death penalty as just, but do you think there's a moral case to be made when people have done something terrible, it isn't necessarily racially disparate, and they still want to apply the death penalty? Because I think for a lot of people, uh, they'll say, well, sure, there are problems and we might need to fix things, but we still should have a death penalty. And, you know, obviously you don't agree to some extent. I definitely don't agree. So I was just wondering kind of what your thinking was there. I think if you look at like industrialized nations, industrialized nations with democracies, the US, United States is basically the only one that still has the death penalty. I think some of these some of these problems with the death penalty, right? I say it's a microcosm of the criminal legal system. These are inherent in society, and you can't fix them without fixing those problems inherent in society. Without being able to fix those problems, we should we should still get rid of the death penalty. And then lastly, I finish on the moral question, right? And when we talk about state-sanctioned murder, state-sanctioned killing of human beings, right, of their own citizens, I just don't see that's something that we want to have in a just society. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, trying to tell people that killing is wrong by killing folks doesn't make a lot of sense to me, you know. Uh, you know, you're, you're running for prosecutor. Uh, I think some people, including myself, have been very supportive of the reform prosecutor movement, while others think that it's kind of impossible to have a good prosecutor. Uh, that there's something inherently wrong with that system. What are your feelings on kind of the debate about using the carceral state's tool, uh, tools to take down parts of the carceral state? Where do you come on this kind of continuum of, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of, you know, the, the anti-carceral kind of abolitionist stance in terms of prosecution? No, so th this is something I had to have an internal debate with myself before I even announced or came to this decision. I if I look at my platform, I think I can do a lot of harm reduction. I can improve the office in, in many ways, but my job is still going to involve caging human beings. And caging human beings, you know, I think if you look at our founding documents, it's life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, like liberty. So taking away an individual's liberty is one of the most serious things that government can do. But when I think about that, I think you want someone who's reluctant or hesitant 
to take away people's liberty, just knowing how important that is in that type of position of power. I think on a, on a more macro scale, I don't, I don't know if I can get more macro than you know talking about principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think there are powers in the legal system that the state's attorney's office has. And that this movement is saying, well, actually, instead of using those powers to ramp up incarceration, to have longer sentences, we can use those powers to de-ramp mass incarceration. But it's, it's not the ultimate solution. It's just, it's, it's a step along the way. And I, and I like to compare it to harm reduction policies. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, across kind of most cities in this country, since the onset of COVID, we've seen kind of a dramatic increase in homicide and domestic violence. Uh, this increase has happened uh, in GOP-led cities, cities run by Democrats, cities with tough on crime prosecutors, and cities with so-called reform prosecutors. Regardless of the causes, things like this seem to really scare folks. How do you talk to people about remaining committed to reform while folks are also afraid of these kind of jumps in crime? I, I think what's important, and you put in your question, is that this is, this is happening in reform cities, in jurisdictions, this is happening in non-reform towns. These are happening in Democratic-led jurisdictions. This is happening in Republican-led jurisdictions. So there's not a policy constant that you can point to that says, oh, that's the cause of this jump. The way I describe it, I'm, I'm trying to imagine a new vision of justice in Prince George's County that hasn't been implemented yet. So you can't argue that these new policies that we're fighting to implement are the cause of, the, of these concerns, right? I think the second point I'd like to, I'd like to talk about is, you know, when we talk about long sentences and mass incarceration, it's not individuals serving misdemeanors. When you talk about an individual's most likely interaction with the criminal legal system, it's through the misdemeanor system. I think studies show about 70 to 80% of, of contacts are through misdemeanors. And I tell people when officers are patrolling neighborhoods, arresting someone for drug possession, bringing them down to the station, fingerprinting them, bagging up evidence, then they have to come back to court a month later, they're gathering 911 calls or talking to the prosecutors about this misdemeanor case. So then the case gets continued to have to come to court again another four weeks. All of that time and energy spent by police officers as well as prosecutors, that's time and energy not actually going towards some of those, those more serious offenses that do endanger the public safety, like homicide, that people are concerned about. So I say, oh, great, great. We're going to stop. We're going to stop prosecuting homeless people for disorderly conduct and trespass. We're going to stop prosecuting people recreationally using you know, using misdemeanor levels of drugs. And then we can use those resources for those things people are concerned about. So I think they work in tandem. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of the data that I've seen, uh, it suggests that, you know, a lot of the resources of law enforcement are put into misdemeanor enforcement and uh, relatively little resources are often put into uh, more serious crimes. And as a result, or maybe as a result of other problems, the clearance rates for major crimes are still fairly high. Do you have kind of a feeling, having been a defense lawyer for a long time, as to why priorities seem to be uh, for, focused mostly on misdemeanor enforcement throughout the justice system? I think it's just a. Whew, that's a that's a that's a heavy question. That's a really heavy question. I think part. Yeah, of I it, try to ask the heavy questions. <laughs> it's tough. I like you know, lawyers. Sometimes we speak, but I like to think. You know, make, have my words. Make sure they match the the weight of the question. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that's really important to think about is when, especially for some of these misdemeanor cases, really all you might need to prosecute is one witness or two witnesses. So it's one thing that you have a police officer, they come and testify in court, you can maybe make that case if you're, if you're from the prosecutor's office. So it's a low-hanging fruit to, to get. I think another point is we've, we have a large criminal code. I, I say in, in Prince George's County, for example, one thing that's banned is, is, is owning a pit bull. But not only is it illegal, is it illegal 
It's actually a misdemeanor punishable up to six months in jail. So I'd argue we have too many things in the criminal code that we that we have criminalized. And because we have so many things, some things ridiculous, I would hope you agree that people shouldn't go to jail for giving a loving dog a home. Because that code is so large, that's why there's so many contacts, misdemeanors, and that's why so much time and energy is spent on, on these misdemeanor enforcement that I don't think jeopardize the public safety at all. Part of my pitch to the community members is we're going to stop these we're going to stop prosecuting these nonviolent misdemeanors that aren't endangering the public safety. And then that leads more resources, more time, right, more energy to the actual matters that people do care about. Yeah, I don't know if I'm the best test for, you know, what should be and not be prosecuted because, you know, there's a whole slew of things I don't think should be prosecuted, many of which people think are, you know, probably more serious. Uh, uh, but still, you know, I, I definitely take your point. Uh, many people saw the recent kind of district attorney's race in Philadelphia and kind of given the current environment uh, as, a re- as, a, as if, if it were a re- referendum on reform, uh, but what we saw was that in the communities that were most directly impacted, up to 80% of the people voted to reelect Larry Krasner. What do you think the media and traditional sources have been getting wrong about what victims and directly impacted communities think about our criminal justice apparatus? That's a good question. I, I guess I want to start by saying, you know, there's not a lot of research on that election yet. I would love to get more on the ground reporting, just talking to different voters and trying to get more of what they were thinking. But from my experience, it's the same communities, the same communities that are over police, that individuals are being arrested for trespass or disorderly conduct. People are being stopped for misdemeanor drug offenses for the smell of marijuana. Those are the same communities that experience, that may, that may experience higher levels of other more serious offenses. So it's when you try to fearmonger them, they know, well, I know individuals in my community who have been, who've been prosecuted for these low-lying offenses that I don't think impact the public safety, right? We've been a victim of maybe police excessive force. Because they had lived experience, that probably shapes how they view what's happening and how they view what prosecution policies they do want in their communities. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of a good lead into this next question. I, I saw, it, you know, I was doing research for this interview. I saw that you said one of the reasons that you ran is that people don't know what's happening in the courthouse and that you want to be part of that educational opportunity. Uh, what would you like people to know about what you've seen in the courts in your area and across the country? So one story I've been, I've been telling is that my wife is a public defender as well. She's now in criminal appeals, but she was representing kids, juveniles, for about two years. And she had a case last she had a case in the last 18 months when she had a kid that was charged as an adult. Now, in Maryland, when a kid is charged as an adult, they have a right to something called a transfer hearing, where you ask the court to please move this case back down to juvenile court. And in her case, the prosecutor assigned to her case said, oh, we'll agree to transfer. We'll consent to transfer. Woohoo, right? Victory. Then the prosecutor said, but only if your client pleads guilty, right? And I was appalled by that because I don't believe any child belongs in adult court. But I especially don't believe that determination of whether someone should be in adult court or juvenile court should depend upon someone waiving their constitutional right to a trial. We brought this to the incumbent. She listened to us. She, she listened to what we said. But to this day, that practice still goes on in the courtroom. So I don't think people realize that we're using the, we're using the decision to have a kid go from adult court to juvenile court as part of plea negotiations to make people waive their, their rights to a trial. Going back further, I think in 2016 and 2020, especially on the Democratic side of the aisle, during the presidential election, there was a lot of talk about the 1994 crime bill and mass incarceration. 
mandatory minimums. But most people have their cases go through the state court system. And every single day across the country, people are facing mandatory minimum charges. And every single day in Prince George's County, people are being charged with mandatory minimum charges. But, but here's what's important. We can protect the public safety without ever using those tools of mass incarceration because for any alleged criminal incident, there could be five, six, seven, eight different criminal statutes that could apply to that conduct. Some of them could carry mandatory minimums and some of them wouldn't. So we can just use the charges that don't carry mandatory minimums and never use that tool of mass incarceration. The way I describe it is, you know, it's a hammer, but we can choose to not pick up that hammer. And there's so many little things like that throughout the criminal code that's happening in our courtrooms every day that I want to tell people about. And I want to say, hey, I don't think this is justice. And, I, and when I talk to voters, they're like, you know what? I never thought of it like that. Yeah. Um, you know, you brought up a couple of topics right there, one of which is kind of how juveniles get charged. Uh, you know, pretty recently, the Supreme Court in Jones versus Mississippi undermined some of the previous court precedent, creating relief for kids sentenced to life without parole. And a lot of the reasons that the earlier court decisions gave were that kids' brains aren't at the same level, they aren't as mature, they make uh, worse decisions, uh, and that, you know, people grow out of that. Uh, but that decision did leave some leeway for states to be more proactive. And one of your platforms on your uh, website is that you oppose sentencing kids as adults. So do you want to talk about how you kind of see that issue and what you kind of think juvenile justice should look like, especially since your wife worked in that area for a long time, too? No, definitely. So thankfully, this past year, or this year, actually, Maryland passed a bill banning life without parole for kids, right, for juveniles. So, you know, thank goodness for that. And just in time, given what's happened with the Supreme Court relatively recently, I think the way I look at it is just like you said, the data shows that the frontal lobe, which impacts decision making, isn't fully developed until 21 or even 25. I think some, some states like Connecticut is actually expanding their juvenile courts to include individuals that are 19 or even 20. And I think if you look at some Western European nations, people 21 and under can be part of their uh, juvenile legal system equivalent, just understanding how the brain develops and how decision making works for people as they grow older. For me, knowing that research, right, looking at some peer nations, looking at some other, other states in the nation, I don't ever want to put a child in adult court. Because when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, right, to me, when we prosecute kids as adults, that's the school to prison pipeline. So let, let's, let's end it. And so what do you think is appropriate? You know, how should we deal with, you know, children who've committed particularly or even not particularly egregious acts? What is the right way for a justice system? How can you right size uh, juvenile justice? No, that's important. So I think it's, it's, it's important to note that there's been Supreme Court, you know, cases, Supreme Court president in, in opinions where they said that the Rehabilitation is not the main purpose of the adult criminal system, right? But it is the main purpose of the juvenile system. That's I can definitely attest to the fact that the adult the criminal justice system isn't very focused on rehabilitation. Yes, that's true. Right, that's, and that's important to know because, as you say, we know that kids grow older, right? Who you are at 15 is different than who you are at 30 or 45 and 60. And that's why the juvenile system is designed to get people resources, to get people counseling. So I think that's a, that's a good differentiation there. But I also think we need to be important that there are there are things that even I'm relatively young, but when I was a kid that was handled maybe through the school system, that's now going into the criminal system. When I don't think sometimes some of those offenses don't need to go into the criminal legal system. Uh, you also mentioned a couple minutes ago that you oppose mandatory minimums. Uh, so you talked about this a little bit, but could you talk a little more about how you think, you know, like charging documents and sentencing might look in a world without mandatory minimums? A great example of mandatory minimums are I've had without revealing confidential information of my cases, right? My ethical duty as a lawyer. There are situations where maybe there's three, four individuals in a car and one firearm is found 
and they charge maybe every single person with possession of that firearm. And if you're facing a mandatory minimum, right, that means if you're found guilty, you could would get a minimum five-year sentence. And I've had cases where I talk to clients and say, hey, maybe I think this is an A, this is an a case. And I describe it as, you know, A in school, you just need to get a 90%. If you have an A case and you, get a, you have a 90%, that's an A in school, that's a 10% chance you could be found guilty after trial. And when you're facing that harsh mandatory minimum, individuals say, what if I just plead to a lesser offense, even though I know I'm innocent, even though I know I have legal defenses, because of that because of the incentive structure of mandatory minimum sentencing. So that's why I'd say it's a tool of mass incarceration. Another big problem with the mandatory minimum sentences are when people are found guilty or plead guilty to those charges, there's no discretion for the judge to treat that individual as an actual individual. And it's how we get these long sentences that are fueling mass incarceration. It's one of the reasons why in the state of Maryland, right, black people make up 31% of the population, but 70% of the people in our prisons and jails. It's because of policies like this. You just raised another issue, which I think is a big part of mass incarceration, which is plea bargaining. You know, as many as 96% of all cases never go to trial because of plea bargaining. Uh, you know, what what's your kind of take on the prosecutor's role in terms of pleas and what, you know, again, how would a system look? How do you think a system becomes right-sized in a world of plea bargaining, if, if at all? I think the if at all is a really important question with how large the system is, right? I'd People say it wouldn't function if every single person literally had a case, right? There's just so many people that, that are going through the system. That's why part of my platform is saying, look at some of these offenses, trespass, disorderly conduct, giving a fake name to a police officer, misdemeanor drug possession, that we just need to remove from the system completely. So get those offenses out of the system, and then we can have, one, put more resources to the more serious offenses that do endanger the public safety, but two, then people can actually adjudicate their rights through trials. Right? That's one of the, the right, that's, Jury trial rights an important function of our legal system that so many people waive. But when we get rid of the nonsense, then there's more time for people to actually adjudicate their rights. But I think that if at all is a really important point. And I, I think it's like, honestly, it's really hard. And I don't want to oversell how we can change the system to, to reduce the amount of plea bargaining that's happening. And what about the use of the trial penalty, which is, you know, as the listeners may not know, but is the, you know, using the threat of keeping the entire, set, you know, charging document, you know, if someone refuses a plea, going to the mat on all the charges and for the maximum weight of all the charges, do you have any thoughts on the tri- the use of the trial penalty or what's called the trial penalty? So, of course, I think it's wrong. I think one important part of my platform that gets rid of that is getting rid of those mandatory minimum sentences where we're stacking charges, right? We're having 10 charges for really the same alleged incident. So that's one way you, you help reduce the trial, the trial tax. The second thing is just have a memo on sentencing and what the sentencing policies for our office will be. In Maryland, we have something called the sentencing guidelines, where they're not, where based upon person's age, their history, et cetera, it gives a range of where their sentence should be, right, from a high number to a low number. And part of what I will do is have a sentencing memo that says you have to ask for the bottom range of that sentencing guidelines, because I feel like the guidelines in Maryland is part of why we have such long sentences, and it's part of what's fueled mass incarceration. You know, uh, given my position, it's odd, but I've actually talked to quite a large number of people either running for prosecutor who are or who are currently prosecutors, uh, you know, on the podcast. And I always ask some version of this question. Um, you know, one thing we've seen a lot of discussion about lately is police reform and prosecutors offices kind of have a sympathetic, sympathetic relationship and work hand in hand with police. And yet, you know, in the instance of, for instance, uh, District Attorney Krasner, we saw the police union literally running the campaign against his reelection. 
I think sometimes it becomes a tough relationship between someone who's running kind of a on a more reform platform and kind of traditional policing. How would you approach kind of re- working with the police and resolving some of these potential tensions uh, as you if you were to win the, the election? So, of course, I would meet with people, but I never want to compromise my my vision of justice that I hope the voters agree with and empower me to implement in Prince George's County. I think in Prince George's County, it's really important to mention some, a lot of things that's happening locally that maybe people don't know about. About a year, maybe two years ago, the ACLU sued the department for basically racial bias in hiring, promotion, as well as disciplining officers. Right? And because of that, there's been an examination of the police department with the, the FOP working with internal affairs to try to get people off. There's been been a whole bunch of officers that have been suspended. And I point out one officer who's recently been charged federally for tax evasion is Lieutenant Scott Finn. But if you look at his history, in 1999, he shot and killed an unarmed person. In 2001, him and his partner during arrest beat someone, and that person ended up dying within an hour of going to the jail. And I say, this person shouldn't have been on the police force for the last 20 years, right? He shouldn't have been on the police force to get indicted this year. But I think it's important to mention him because and we had, when he was involved in criminal cases, when those type of officers that have a history of misconduct, have a history of being accused of racial bias, when we ask for those records in court as criminal defense attorneys, two people come to court saying we don't have a right to those records. Someone from the county attorney's office representing the police union and the prosecutor signed to the case. And to me, when prosecutors fight the high police misconduct in criminal cases, they create the conditions that let police misconduct right fester and harm the community. I think an example of this is is Derek Chauvin, the person who killed George Floyd. He had 22 comp- at use of force or internal affairs investigative reports against him before he killed George Floyd. If we would have stopped him earlier, could have, we could have stopped more harm in our community. And that, so what you're talking about, I think you've talked about in your platform is uh, publishing Brady lists. Do you want to say anything more about that? And is, it, is there a legal prohibition from publishing them or something that stops you from being able to publish them? Because I know, I think uh, someone mentioned that that was arguing that that was the case. Yes. So I would release, they call it the Brady list, which just means a list of officers that have potential credibility issues. Maybe they have been investigated in the past for use of force issues or racial bias issues or other type of misconduct, maybe truthfulness issues. And maybe there's even investigative materials that have to be turned over to defense in any case they're involved in. So I might go on a bit of a rant. I hope that's okay. Oh, rants are fine. I, I like them. <laughs> All right. So about two months ago, there was a local media report about the list the, with the incumbent talking about she's now created this list. It was reported that there's 28 officers on this list and 15 of them aren't called as witnesses in court. My immediate reaction was, hmm, it sounds like half the list is still being called as witnesses in court. And as part of this local media report, they were interviewing this officer who was working part-time security at a party when there was a noise complaint. Another officers arrived, and, when, and as this officer working part-time security, tries to identify himself, hey, I'm an officer as well. What's going on? Can I, how can I help? This officer who responded to the scene basically tackles him, assaults him, and arrests him. The officer that was working part-time security knows his rights, so he sues. He sues for violation of his, of his civil rights. This other officer who responded, instead of coming to court and saying, you know what, I made a mistake, he basically gets on the witness stand and lies about what happens. Luckily for this officer working part-time security, there were other officers working part-time security to back up his side of, the, of events. And because it's, 20, because it's 2020, 2021, there's video of people taking Instagram videos, Snapchat videos that captured part of the incident. Why is this important? Why am I mentioning this? Because during the interview, talking to him and his lawyer, they mentioned because this list of officers with issues is private, because it's secret, we don't know if this officer that's a known liar and a known abuser is on this Brady list. 
Here's even more important. We don't know how many individuals have convictions or God forbid, how many people are sitting inside a cage right now based upon the testimony of this officer that's a known liar and a known abuser. So not only do I want to publicly release this list so people can know who these individuals harming community members, I want this list out so the public can hold me accountable and say, what are you doing about people that are in jail or people that have convictions based upon officers on this list? It's going to be public. We're going to review those cases over the last 30 years in which those officers have been involved in. Because if those, if those officers aren't credible to testify, then those convictions aren't credible either. And with it being public, the community can hold me responsible and say, hey, you said you're going to do this. This list is public. You haven't investigated Officer John Doe's case yet. Uh, that's, that's are there... Are there, uh, you know, are there any reasons why you, I mean, legal reasons why you can't publish it? I don't, I don't know the the law in this area. So that's, that's important. So I think there's a distinction, right? So some of those internal affairs records are considered confidential personnel records when it comes to, you know, public information act requests. FOIA federally in Maryland is called MPIA, the Maryland Public Information Act. So sometimes the documents that maybe the prosecutor has reviewed added the officer to the list, they can't review those actual documents. But the list itself is something created by the state's attorney's office, not covered by the Public Information Act, is not considered a confidential personnel record and can be released to the public. So um, we're conducting this interview on June 3rd, 2021. And literally today, a new report came out, which starts with this sentence. American prosecutors are active lobbyists who routinely support making the criminal law harsher. I saw that you promised on your platform to remove Prince George's County from the Maryland State Attorneys Association. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about this and your reasons for why uh, you want to, you know, kind of remove yourself from the, the your county from this list? It wasn't until relatively recently that I learned the power of these associations in Maryland. It's called the State's Attorney Association and the role they play in shaping the law here. I think one story I like to tell is last year after the killing of George Floyd, after the killing of Breonna Taylor, there were some, there were certain community events and we were holding one with some of the elected prosecutors across the state. And we were asking about different reform proposals. And one of the, one of the proposals that was put, I was asked about was the bill to ban all no-knock warrants. And I sat there as the incumbent state's attorney and other state's attorney across the state was saying, no, 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 we don't need to get rid of no-knock warrants. We need to implement this reform that I think is rather weak instead. So then comes back to this session in Maryland, the legislature's part-time, they meet between January and April. You can imagine the bill to ban no-knock warrants was not passed, but the reform, the weak reform that was supported by the State's Attorney Association was passed instead. There's legislation to mimic what happened in Oregon to basically decriminalize all misdemeanor possession of drugs that was opposed by the State's Attorney Association. You're getting a theme. So So constantly as we're fighting for some of these reforms, we find out that the state's attorney association is against them. So not only are they executing these laws that have created mass incarceration, but they're now creating some of these laws. So I think it's important to remove Prince George's County from this association and then instead advocate for reforms that my community wants and desperately needs. Yeah, you know, it's sort of, I mean, I'm being sarcastic here, but one of the, to some extent, but one of the things that they always say is we don't make the laws, we enforce the laws as a general rule in my experience with state attorneys association. Uh, But the truth is they are, often at the table when the laws are being debated. And so, yeah, there, it is important to kind of address this issue, but I think some might say that by removing your, your county, you might also reduce your ability to make change in that state's attorney's association. Is that fair? Or do you think it's, why do you think standing alone is a better solution? 
I think I would disagree because I can then advocate for some of those policies that my community wants. When I was at this community meeting, there was like, no, we want to get rid of no-knock warrants. There's, there's not just a problem in Louisville, it's a problem here in Maryland and in Prince George's County. But the State's Attorney Association ended up being a barrier to that bill. And there's other reforms. Or, and that, right, no-knock warrants isn't necessarily something that impacts like the criminal code per se. So you see that the State's Attorney Association not, is not only shaping criminal law, but it's also shaping police law and what type of police reforms that can pass. So I think it would be important to leave that association and actually advocate for the things that my community members are saying that they want. And you mentioned no-knock warrants a couple of times. Uh, so I feel like I should at least ask, you know, a lot of the things I've seen uh, people argue about this over time is that one of the potential problems with getting rid of no-knock warrants is that it, there's another, they just come up with a different pretext to do the same thing. Like, you know, maybe they don't knock, but they announce themselves or they do a bunch of other things or they have a grace period or whatever. It, you know, is there really a, I mean, do you think, it's enough to just back to get rid of the no-knock warrants, or do you think that it ha- that reform would have to go farther? I think it's a good first step, but yes, there's there's other reforms that need to be done. I think in Maryland, there, for at least a four-year period, there was actually reporting requirements for all basically SWAT raids, and in Maryland, most I think like 80, 88 percent of warrants are executed by by local SWAT department departments. I apologize. So I think that type of data collection is important try to see what the trends are to see what reforms actually are, are needed to be implemented. Uh, and since most no-knock warrants are kind of usually drug related, uh, what are kind of your thoughts on, you know, kind of the war on drugs and drug prosecutions as someone who's, you know, going to be walking, theoretically walking into a prosecutor's office? I think if someone's being charged with a misdemeanor drug possession case, they're, they're, there's probably three categories. They're experimenting, they are doing it recreationally, or maybe there's a substance use disorder. And I think neither of those circumstances, someone should be caged or even threatened to be caged. So I want to dismiss all of those cases. Do you, do you feel like, you know, you know, I, 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 uh, am in, you know, been sober for myself for, you know, nearly closely to somewhere between 25 and 30 years from substance abuse. And one of the things I remember, uh, from those days are that a lot of people who meet those three categories that you were talking about, are often sometimes dabble in dealing because they, you know, their financial pressures, whatever. Uh, I know legally we kind of make this distinction between uh, users and dealers, but I'm not sure it always works out that way in the real world of how use occurs. Uh, do you kind of have any thoughts about kind of this distinction between dealing and using? Well, I mean, that's a really, that's a really good, important point. I think, like you said, some of that depends with like how much, right, of the alleged a controlled dangerous substance, that's the legal term. It's like found an individual to try to find that line. I think part of it is once we get rid of the misdemeanor drug possession charges, that leaves room for these diversion programs for some of those people that perhaps are being charged with possession with intent to distribute with dealing, but actually it's really they have the own they have their own substance use disorder. And we want to provide them with services. I think what really colors my policy overall on this is I've been blessed with some really great educational opportunities. And during my time at Howard and during my time at Harvard Law, I've seen people that also partake in these partake in drugs. Then I've also, but as my public defender, I've seen my, my clients charged criminally for some of the same drugs I've seen classmates use in my educational experiences. And that contradiction to me is not justice. Well, I mean, I think we've had multiple presidents who admitted to using, uh, you know, substances that could have gotten them put away for a decent stretch. Um, you mentioned harm reduction earlier. Do you kind of, you, and you've talked about uh, diversion programs. Uh, you know how. You know what do you? Th- how do you think harm reduction 
functions and and does the prosecutor have a role in harm reduction uh, with drug prosecutions? I think they definitely have a role. One example is in Maryland, we've been fighting to get overdose prevention sites implemented here in Maryland for the past maybe six, seven years. And every year that bill, the bill dies. Part of it is, right, part of it is elected prosecutors lobbying against this legislation, right? I mentioned before there was a bill to mirror what happened in Oregon to, be, to decriminalize misdemeanor possession of, of, all, of all drugs, right? That was opposed by the State Attorney Association. So I think in order to implement some of these harm reduction policies, you're going to need elected prosecutors that say, no, actually, we are in favor of some of these policies, especially in regards to drug prosecutions, but with other but with other type of prosecutions as well. Uh, you know, to change the subject just a little bit, we've seen a lot of folks start to move towards kind of the criminalization of homelessness over the last couple of years. It's become kind of a frequent media topic and uh, a lot of talk shows and, and, and media uh, have been, you know, kind of spinning this up. I think we probably both agree that this is wrong. What would your approach as prosecuting attorney be? There will be some, some of those low-level offenses like trespass disorderly conduct that we're just going to dismiss outright. And we're going to try to work with some of our local groups. In Prince George's County, there's really only one men's shelter. And there's, you know, there's problems with it. We want, to, we want to work with those groups to try to get them resources to halfway houses, get them resources to housing. I think, oh, man, I wish I would have prepared with the article about how actually housing first, I think that's the policy, actually helps. Like cheaper than when we're talking about arresting people, trying to throw people in cages and you're paying for three meals a day, you're paying to house them. So not only is it inhumane, but it's more expensive than just giving them housing in the first place. You know, one of the main drivers of kind of arrests, at least in my state, is arrests for driver's license suspensions that are unrelated to risky driving. Uh, what do you think about this form of criminal justice debt? <laughs> Pardon me. Uh, what do you think about this? Uh, what do you think about this form of criminal justice debt? I think it's something we need to get rid of, especially now with the pandemic, right? People having disruptions in jobs, disruptions in their economic stability. That you're probably that we're seeing even more of these these incidents, and then someone who's who works in a suburb, people need to drive to work. But then if your license is suspended, you can't get to work. And then if you don't, so if you can't get to work, you then can't pay your your tickets. Given what we know about the discrepancy of who, what type of cars are being stopped and whose cars are being stopped, it's important to. I think we need maybe just have I think what's it called a tax jubilee. We need to have a driving suspended jubilee for a lot of these offenses where people are going or being threatened with caging because of because of suspended licenses. I will say, though, the Maryland legislature has made some changes to the code where for certain types of driver's license suspensions, most of them financial, you cannot go to jail. But one of the problems is if you miss court on those fences, they can still ask for bench warrants asking for your arrest. So I would definitely eliminate asking for bench warrants for people's arrests for those driving suspended offenses if they fail to if they miss a court date, right, because they didn't get notice of it. But I think it is important to mention that the Maryland legislature has at least tried to do some things to correct this problem. So we've talked about a lot of serious subjects. I figure, you know, since people are getting to know you, hopefully through listening to this, what's something people might not know about you that would be good for them to know? You know, I'm really into A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones. I've, I've read the books. I've read the Dunkin' Egg Tales and novellas. <laughs> and sometimes you might catch me tweeting about it. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but I, I my as a writer, I actually was very successful doing writing on Game of Thrones. So that's also a passion of mine. That's interesting. OMG. All right, let's chat about it. What's your favorite subject? Let's get into it. Oh, I, you know, I mean, I wrote about it for a really long time. So, you know, I mean, in a sense, my biggest thing was that I was a, a, a fairly big critic of the last several seasons of the uh, of the television show for a lot of reasons. I think a lot of people were, but uh, maybe about a season earlier than most people, I was talking about real problems with continuity 
and uh you know uh so i think that's what a lot of my writing was about uh you know kind of deeper criticisms than just oh this stinks but there's a lot of that but i'm a really big fan of the universe that he created have all the books have the duncan egg have the history of westeros have you know i have all of them you know and i've been reading them for years i actually read the reason i got into it was because the first holding cell i was ever in one of the books was in there and it had the cover torn off and i didn't even know what it was and that was the first time i ever started reading george rr martin which is uh kind of a strange uh way way to get into it but that's what got me into it yeah, I mean, his books are long, so it's a good way to pass time. Can I do something that might make me lose some people, but I still want to try to make <laughs> sense? Sure. So I agree with you. There's some of the storytelling and quality of storytelling declined in the last couple of seasons. But I, to this day, I will defend the series finale to death. I think some of the main protagonists all got good conclusions to their arc that made sense. And that's, 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 the, you know, that's the thesis statement. I can go in deeper, but I, I want people to know that. Uh, if you really want to... Well, I would definitely agree that it doesn't bother me that Bran won. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't bother me. Uh, but there was a lot of stuff along the way that was <laughs> pretty troubling to get there. I'm not, I, you know, I think they always said that, you know, they sat down with uh, Benioff and Weiss sat down with George R. R. Martin, and he didn't tell them how he was getting to the end, but he told them the end. And he, he calls what he does gardening. And, you know, so they were doing their gardening and he was doing his gardening. And, you know, maybe we'll never see what his gardening was because we're still waiting for the damn next book. But, uh, you know, for me, it wasn't really the ending that bothered me. It was everything that led to the ending. I hear that. But, hey, keep hope alive. We're getting that next book confirmed (laughs) this year, not this year, than the next. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had a theory for a long time that was proven wrong, that he was actually mad about the way the series was going and that he was going to get his revenge by publishing in the first December because the books have always come out in December. And uh, I was very, very, very wrong about that. <laughs> no, think about it. No, we're going to get this book this year. Then next year, we're getting the House of Dragons prequel seasons. 2023, we're going to get a new Dunkin' Egg book. And then 2024, we're going to get the series, this, the final book, the seventh book of the series. You got you to be speak it into existence. <laughs> well, uh, I like your optimism and I'll, I'll definitely hope that you're right. Um, so, uh, you know, if you had to go back to kind of criminal justice stuff, if you had the necessary power to make any changes that you wanted, and I know that you have a platform and, but I mean, if you had like a magic wand kind of power, uh, what would our criminal justice system look like? I think if I had a magic wand, I would attack a lot of the things before we get to the criminal justice system, right? I speak about housing first. I would buy up all these random hotels and house people there that are, that are facing homelessness. So they're not even in the opportunity to be dragged into the criminal legal system. I would implement harm reduction policies when it comes to drug possession and other offenses across the system. But I think more importantly, my, my guiding ethos, my guiding ethics would be that caging human beings is a very serious thing. That we need to create, that the goal is to create a world in which we don't cage human beings, right? We're not there, but that's the ultimate goal that we're fighting towards every single day. This year, I'm asking people if there are any criminal justice related books they might recommend to others. Do you have any personal favorites? I think maybe Ghetto Side, book that was released about that's that's a good one or five years ago, maybe longer than that. But I like that book a lot. Yeah, it's it's a great book. John Faff loves that book a lot too. Um, nice. I always ask the same last question: What did I mess up? What question should I have asked but did not? You didn't mess up at all. You were great. The only time you messed up was your pessimism about getting the the next book, The Winds of Winter. That's the only thing you did wrong. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I hope you're right. I hope I'm wrong. You know, that I'm, I'm rooting for you to be right on that one. Uh, so thanks so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure to have you on uh, Decarceration Nation. Well, once again, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed today's interview. And now, my take. Today I'm wishing my friends at The Appeal good luck. As many who listened to my interview several weeks ago with Emily Galvin Almanza and Alana Sylvan know there was a battle between the leadership and the writers at The Appeal. This ultimately led to what formerly been called The Appeal shutting down, but the writers have banded together to try to restart The Appeal as a writer-led, non-profit outlet. Look, over the last few years, The Appeal has been one of the few consistent voices challenging tough-on-crime narratives. This has been a very important media voice challenging police, politicians, conventional wisdom, and prosecutors in the press. I wish them all the luck in the world in finding a way towards solid funding in this very challenging media environment. Everyone can help them out, and I will include a link to how to support the new appeal in the show notes. I don't usually do this, but if you have the means, please do support them. They're doing important work in the criminal justice space. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us from Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, to Ann Aspo for helping with our transcripts and social media images, and to Alex Mayo, who helps with our website. Make sure and add us on social media and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.